Welcome to Life Outside of Sport, where we'll be diving in and exploring what happens once the game is over. My name's Lewis Harrington, PGA golf professional, and I'll be joined, as always, by Dean Hammond, former Premier League footballer and co-founder and creator, Liam DC. Very, very different episode this week. Um, Liam, did you enjoy that, mate? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm a huge fan of Mike's books, so I just sat quietly and listened for, what, two hours? A fantastic journey that he's been on, um, lots of variety in there, lots of different sports that he's been involved in, some amazing books, as I've said. So it was just just great to, to sit and have a conversation with him. Some truly incredible stories um, that certainly touched me. So it's, it's a great, I know it's going to be a great listen. Dean, how about yourself, mate? You enjoy that? Just a brilliant insight. Um, uh, a, a man that's obviously experienced a lot um, within his career and his life. Um, spoken or worked with some amazing uh, people, um, especially sports people. Um, written some books, and you know, from the interview and the, the way he's discussed things, helps a lot of people as well. You know, the individuals that he's written the books with, and um, individuals in and out, in and out of the game. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, interview and quite touching really you know touched a few nerves for us all you know it got close to home with a few experiences that we could really relate to um, but yeah a really good listen and um, yeah Mike a, a top guy for coming on and, and being so open with us couldn't agree more mate um, without further ado there is uh, an unbelievable listen uh, ahead so um, here's the interview with Mike Calvin Really briefly, why the career? Why sport? Why football? Why journalism? Why writing? Where did that come about for you, Mike? Uh, I was really fortunate that, you know, from a very, very early age, I knew what I wanted to do. And, and essentially it was down. It, I suppose the pivotal experience was being a ball boy at uh, uh, Watford uh, back in the time where dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, 1970. Uh, FA Cup quarterfinal, uh, Watford, and it's been love. It's been described really nicely as a rust bucket club. It was sort of bouncing around the old third, second division, and uh, they beat the uh, the first great Bill Shankly Liverpool team one nil. And I looked around as a ball boy then, and you know, you guys will know it is a completely different perspective when you get close to the action. So as a ball boy, I could see the, the fear in players' eyes when they went down. I could, you know, you, you, you see the thousand-yard stares when they're coming off the pitch and they know they're in for it when they get into the dressing room. And, like, you know, the insecurity um, comes across. And that's lost in the ether in many ways because the, the other side of that equation, you know, I looked around, there was a... Uh, of a football, a striker called Barry Endine scored the goal. Sort of a, he took off a bit like an Antonov. You know, it, it, it wasn't graceful, but he had this sort of diving header to score the winning goal. And actually, in the book, uh, whose game is it anyway? There's a picture of that moment where he's turned and coming, to, and so his teammates are coming towards him. And I was struck by the faces in the crowd, just as I was in the day, and just the joy and the euphoria, euphoria and the disbelief 
And on that day and in that season, um, I formed you know, a, an absolutely fundamental, I think, understanding of what, you, what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it, which was, you know, football is not, as, we, as we've seen in the last couple of days, it's not about money. It's not about business exploitation. It's about dreams and ambitions, realisable ambitions, both in the playing sense, but also almost seeing others perform and enjoying their, their performance vicariously through that. But it's also about dreams. And, you know, when I was, I was 11, year, 11 years old there, and as ball boys, we used to change next to the uh, home dressing room in a laundry room. And that laundry room, and I'm sure you've all been around enough training grounds to, to get the smell that I'm going to talk about here, which is like stale sweat, bit of soap powder, and you can, I could, I could um, smell the liniment as well. And, you know, that's the smell of football. And the sounds next door, you could hear, um, you'd hear the studs. And they all actually, the, the Puma rep must have done a brilliant job there because they all, they all, these guys were on four quid a week bonuses, win bonuses at the time. And they all had Puma Kings. So the, 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 the Puma guy had obviously done a number on them. Um, but you could hear the entreaties, these muffled entreaties. And there was also a fan light where you could hear the murmur of the crowd. So there was this fantastic sense of involvement and engagement. And I figured that since I was a, you know, a truly pathetic centre-half, there was no way I was going to experience that as a player. But as a writer, I could actually share that experience with others. And I'm lucky that I've got an ability to you know, see my way around an alphabet. Um, so from that moment on, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been really lucky since. Amazing, Mike. How how did that transform into the to the to the writing? Then, so you're eleven. You're obviously going through that school period. Was you ex excelling in that department at school to go? You know, this is this is how I can do it. It's um, oh, it, it, it's actually funny enough. Uh, it was after I after I saw that. It was almost um because I was so focused, you know, I used to bombard the local paper with um, youth reports, you know, you know, from park football and stuff like that. And they must've got completely sick of me, which actually isn't a bad strategy when you think about it, because, you know, how many times do people do, you know, do something for you when they're just fed up with you, either with your email, your emails or your voice on the end of the phone. Persistence is everything. Um, and also I was just lucky, you know, uh, I, I got TB when I was 16, uh, and had spent three and a half months in, um, isolation at Harefield hospital in Middlesex. And that left me alone. One with my imagination, I created this sort of fictitious, almost like fantasy football league. Um, and, uh, I had, a, I created the first division. Uh, and there was a pure act of schoolboy vindictiveness. I kicked out Leeds United from my first division, you know, the old Revy first division, and put Watford in in their place. Um, at, at that time, also, I'd there was this, I was meant to be doing schoolwork. I'd just started my A levels, um, and 
I you know, pretty much dumped that quite quickly. Although I loved Dickens at the time. I was reading a lot of Dickens, and I, I thought as as a reporter, he was in you know people like him and George Orwell. I I, I loved their social reporting, and that's the, one of the great things about sports writing. I've always felt is that it gives you an ability one to see the best in human nature, but also you do see the worst in human nature. And you know, there's a bit of sort of snobbishness about sports writers in journalism in terms of, you know, we, we're sometimes um, uh, dismissively referred to as being in the toy department. Yet, when you think about it, sport is such a universal thing. It gives you a unique ability to experience and assess different social situations, different political regimes, you know, I've, I've been lucky in my career in terms of, you know, I've worked in over 80 countries and see, you know, I'm called in by Thatcher after, after Heisel. So you see the application of political power through her and that's still enduring, you know, this whole idea that, that football supporters are second-class citizens. I still think that that endures, that, 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 that idea. Um, worked a lot in the Eastern Bloc Sport enabled me also to get into um, enclosed countries. So, for instance, when Poland uh, was under martial law in, in the early 80s, um, no Western journalists were allowed in, but they had to let us in, us being a few accredited football journalists with the England under-21 team. There was a, a European Championship quarter-final against Poland, a two-legged uh, job. And... You know, there is this, they had to let us in because if they didn't, Poland would have been kicked out of the competition. Um, when we got to Warsaw, the International Brotherhood of, of, of Journalism kicked in and the local guys um, had set up a clandestine meeting for us with the activists, the solidarity activists. So... Um, a couple of us feigned a tourist trip to the Arch Cathedral in uh, Warsaw and uh, conducted an interview or interviews in the confessionals. So they, they, they put the, the, the activists on the other side of the, uh, of the grill, you know, uh, and through that we were able to get a, a true picture of what was going on. And then as soon as we were out of the country, obviously we can publish. So it's stuff like that, you know, work, I worked in, in South Africa, um, dying days of apartheid. So, I, I, and I took sides then. That's probably the first and only time I really took sides. I, I just, I just was, I just loathed what I saw. Um, so that was probably, you know, I'm, I'm probably going too far forward in, in many ways because I actually came out of, of hospital having, um, you know, read all those things, just basically it was almost my finishing school in a way. And um, I, I, would, I was deeply affected by two journalists at that time. I, I had, um, you know, as a kid, council estate kid in Watford, I had a, um, you know, we had the Daily Mirror at home and uh, they, they had a, a reporter called John Pilger who, who wrote about social issues, but he wrote about social issues through the experiences of ordinary people. 
and that had a big impact on me. And also, my sort of my sports writing heroes, guy called um, Ian Waldridge of the Daily Mail, and I f- was first really aware of him in uh, from the, the Munich massacre, where he wrote so vividly and empathetically. I, I cut out the columns of the kid and just kept every column that he that he that he wrote. And I suppose if I translate all that into into sporting terms, football terms, like, you know, there is, I suppose, you know, the lessons of it are, if you're a young player, make sure you get the right role models, be persistent, and and also be inquisitive. You've never learned every, you, you know, you're just at the start. You know, you, you, you have to um, be sufficiently humble, however talented you are, you have to be sufficiently humble to have a, to to basically um, want to go. You know, it's a cliche. You want to go the extra mile, but basically, you've got to realise that if you're going into sport and, you, and if you're going into journalism, you're going into an insanely competitive business. So you've got to try. You, you've just got to basically give yourself an opportunity to stand out in a very, very big crowd. And that's diff- that is diff- difficult, as I say. And also you need luck. My luck came that um, soon after I got into hospital, got out of hospital, um, my local paper, the Watford Observer, um, had a, an opening for a junior sports reporter uh, and I got it. And I just jacked in my A-levels, much to the disgust of my, my headmaster. And um, I was off and running, really. It's um, there's so many points. We're frantically writing, Mike, of uh, of all of, of everything you mentioned. It's really ironic that you mention <clears throat> the um, the isolation isolation period that obviously you suffered with the with the TV mm. um, uh, at a time where obviously we've just been through you know yeah. that very similar isolation period, which has had different effects on a lot of us. And if I think if we just use us three and how this has been created without this isolation period that we've been through, this doesn't happen. Um, and I think on a personal level, I can certainly relate to that. You know, I mean, you've got no other option than to sit with yourself uh, and, and sit with your own, own thoughts and really sort of figure out what, what it is. It's just, it's, it's fascinating that, that you've, you've picked that up there. Did that, did that fuel an ambition then to, was that at that point to fuel an ambition to think that's what I want to do? I want to be at the top of the game. I want to be, you know, writing in in the big papers. You know, writing books. Was that at that point, or did it change? No, uh, I suppose you know, coming from you know, my sort of traditional working class background, I I I wanted to excel. I had I had I suppose I had a hunger to excel. And I probably was prepared to challenge the status quo to get to where I wanted to get as quickly as I could. So in, in many ways, I probably did everything they told me not to. So when I joined um, the local paper, so my headmaster um, looked at me like I'd defecated on his desk when I told him I was leaving. He, was, he just he just hated it. He thought I had ideas above my station. So I upset him. I did uh, about 18 months on the local paper, something like that, two years. And you're meant to, to become a, a, 
a bona fide journalist, you're meant to get what's called a uh, NCTJ certificate, National Council for the Training of Journalists. And that gives you, you know, it makes you a, you know, a qualified journal, if you like. And um, you go, when I first started, you go through indentions, which are like a form of apprenticeship. Um, you know, my stuff got noticed um, by a guy called Reg Hater, who ran uh, his, uh, an agency in Fleet Street, which has produced generations of sports writers, a lot of leading guys. And, um, you know, he'd seen my stuff in the paper and, and, and basically he said, look, you know, come up and join me. And so I went to the, uh, the, the Watford Observer's editor, a guy called Ernie Foster, and, and said, look, I'm leaving. He said, well, you can't do that. You're not a qualified journalist. And I said, well, I'm leaving. <laughs> so uh, then went to, to Haters, and um, that was the real world. It was Fleet Street, which was um, just a wonderful, it was, it was so atmospheric. You know, I just fell in love with the place. And I was also thrown fully into, into football. You know, I was covering 10 games a week. You know, I do like reserves in the afternoon, evening games. For haters, when you went to a game, you just didn't do one report. You did about four or five different reports. You know, I do a radio piece. You know, I don't know. Let's say they were playing Middlesbrough. QPR read Middlesbrough, let's say. I'd do Radio Teesside and I'd do the local paper up there, you know, the, um, probably be the Northern Echo, which is their daily paper up there. Um, and, you know, a few runners, you know, runners, what you know, we call running reports during the game. Um, so basically, you, you learn to take everything in your stride um, to the extent that... Uh, you know, you get a bit blasé about it. And Reg one one day came in. Uh, Reg had his own office. His his background. He was one of the first uh, agents, and uh, he, as a cricket writer for the Press Association, used to cover the England cricket team on like the Ashes tours when you know they took six weeks to get to Australia on the boat. Um, had a huge uh, group of clients and friends. Um, and, you know, to the extent, for instance, that when I was 19, I was ghostwriting for Dennis Compton. And that entailed uh, going into uh, Elvino's, which is a, a famous um, Fleet Street watering hole. It's sort of mahogany uh, panelled um, restaurant. And there'd be Reg in there with Dennis and Richie Benno, um, Bill Edridge, um, a guy called Keith Miller, Australian fast bowler, just like almost mythical figures in front of me. And you'd go, I'd go to, they'd all get together at Lord's Test Match and I'd have to go up to the uh, the old press box at the top of the Warner stand. And, uh, you know, you walk in there and it's like Narnia. You know, it was just like um, on the left-hand side, you'd have uh, John Arlott with a bottle of claret after lunch doing his stuff, which is poetry. You know, Richie, tapping away at this sit-up-and-beg typewriter. Um, Fred Truman would be walking around in this sort of muttering cloud of pipe smoke. Len Hutton would be in the back row sucking his pencil because he had a meeting with his ghostwriter at, uh, at tea time. And I'd sort of sidle up to, to Dennis, who had this sort of like vat of 
gin and tonic in his hand. And uh, I said, well, you know, what would you like to do on, t- on, on today's play? And he said, oh, oh boy, he said, I'm sure you'll come up with something wonderful. And then he just <laughs> go off and down the long run. So I had to, I was Dennis Compton uh, for that particular day. Um, so when you, when you, when you're brought up in that environment, you, as you say, you learn to take stuff in, 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 your, in hand. Um, you know, at 20, I, first, I wrote my first book, which was with, uh, uh, Ray Illingworth, who was then the England cricket captain, called in one morning by by Reg, and as I said, he had this really ancient sit up and beg, and he used to go out, he used to go out for lunch, and you could tell him when it was a good lunch because he'd come back and he'd just put his head down on on the keys and just fall asleep. It was brilliant, but he he said, "Okay, Calvin, I've got I've got something for you today." That it, ITV World of Sport, which tells you how long ago this was, uh, uh, they they need. Um, a 2000 word piece for their annual by the end of play today. So I'm a bit sort of, yeah, fine. Yeah. What, yeah, fine. What is it? It's on competitive frog jumping. So I'm going, <laughs> okay. Um, that's how it worked then. And he said, well, and you've got to remember this is before Mr. Google, which is before everything, you know, I'm thinking, my God. Um, and, and Reg had remembered he'd re- he'd read, um, a uh, short story by Mark Twain uh, about a contest, frog, jump, frog jumping contest in California. So I thought, well, how the hell am I going to? I know what I'll do. I'll phone the American Embassy because one of the things, the one of the things that you you know you, you you acquire quite quickly is a pretty thick skin, you know. Because uh, frankly, you know, well, I'll put it to you guys: if someone phoned you up and said, uh, "Tell me all you know about frog jumping," you know, you'd think I was a lunatic, wouldn't you? So, uh, but again, sometimes it's it's better to be born lucky than talented. So I phoned, I phoned the press office and this, I could hear this guy go, yeah, is this a wind up or not? But there was a guy in his office who'd come from uh, Louisiana and he'd heard, you know, as a kid, he'd seen these contests. So I said, so, so, look, can I put him on? So I, I Started chatting away. Anyway, that and a, you know a little bit of creative um, uh, liberty. I, I came up with two thousand words on frog jumping. It was bonkers, but I suppose that that is it. Uh, I suppose the the moral of that story is that one, if you've got hunger, you usually have that. That's usually expressed also through confidence, and you've got the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to back myself here. So I suppose that is relatable across you know, professional sport in many ways, isn't it? There's so much you say, Mike, that's, that's relatable. Um, there's conversations we've had this week, which really uh, stem, you know, one in particular that stands out of, of uh, you know, you've had two situations there where you speak to the headmaster, you move from the Watford Observer, I think you said it was, um, where where you back yourself, you know, you, you stick to your ground. They would advise you differently. Uh, we had a conversation this week, which was exactly the same. Um of, of standing your ground in regards to, um, you know, sticking to your values, what you believe in, even though others are potentially advising you different. Um, the, the quest as you, so as you're, as you're going through that, you know, you, there's, there's, there's loads of movement. Was there any point that a rejection hits you where you're like, this is maybe not for me, you know, a bit, a bit, a bit later in the career, was there any point where you're thinking, and you've got to turn to someone else for advice, or was it always, you know, whatever's going to be put in front of me, I'm going to overcome it because 
I'll find a way. Yeah, you do find a way. I, I suppose that self-reliance, you know, it might, I've not thought too deeply about it, um, but I suppose that self-reliance might be a byproduct of that time alone in, in, on, on the isolation ward. That, you know, okay, there's only, there's only one way I can get out of this. Uh, one test, test negative for three months and then basically, you know, grab life by the, by the lapels when you get out. Um, you know, there's all, all, there are always ups and downs, I suppose. Um, the ups were, I was noticed um, at Haters um, and joined a, a group of, of um, regional papers called Westminster Press um, as their chief sports writer, which sounds really grand, but I was the only sports writer. And it was my job to do all the major events for the group. So that was 14 or 15 um, evening papers, a couple of morning papers. And so from, from doing sort of QPR reserves, I was suddenly thrown into um, the England team uh, under Ron Greenwood. Um, there's a picture in, in whose who's, uh, game is it anyway of... Uh, the first England manager's press conference that I, that I did. Uh, it, was in, it was in Barcelona airport, which is a lot different than to it is now, um, in, the caf, in the cafe. And there's a bunch of, bunch of guys. It's about nine, it must have been nine o'clock in the morning. They'd beaten, uh, beaten Spain 2-0 in uh, the Camp, camp Nou the previous night. And uh, about nine in the morning. So, you know, there were obviously a few heads on because you could see on the table there were a couple of beers on the table. Uh, and there's Ron Greenwood, um, surrounded by maybe eight to ten journos. Now, today, an England manager is like a multi-media experience and it's all planned down at the second and it's just high, it's just it's it's superficial to a large degree because no one wants to actually really say anything that's that's uh, likely to cause you know, the usual outbreak of what aboutery. So uh, I went straight into that. Then I did the, my first Olympics in, in Moscow in 1980. And for basically uh, three years, um, you know, I did what, pretty much what I wanted all around the world. And it was just, it was mad. You know, I was really, I was really young. Um, then uh, they closed it down. And I can remember there was, there was a, 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 the editor was a guy called Mark Barrington Ward, who was this very sort of patrician figure. And when he said, look, you know, we're going to have to make you me redundant, the sort of the council house kid in me came out. I nearly reached across the, the desk and strangled him. You know, I was like, you, you know. <laughs> um, so I suppose I better apologise for that now because I didn't at the time. Um, and... Uh, I thought, sod it. I went to, I went, I went I, on the Redondo, um, went to Barbados for, for a couple of weeks, got back and uh, <laughs> I got a job in TV for a year at Thames Tele, Television and it was their six o'clock news. And uh, the local journos there, you know, I called it cat up a tree news because it was just, you know, you know, these, these sort of, it was these programs, I suppose they do sometimes exist today, but you know, I had a two-man a two-man sports desk with uh, uh, Steve Ryder, who's a brilliant pro, brilliant pro, uh, and we just look around at some of this sort of theatrical nonsense going on over, like sort of 
you know, the latest at the Greater London Council or whatever. Um, but it was, it was, it was, it was good. You know, I wasn't really um, uh, completely um, sold on it. Um, it enabled me to do my first um, TV trips into Europe with uh, with Watford then, who'd qualified for uh, the then UEFA Cup. Um, so uh, it was an interesting experience, but uh, yeah, I've always been a, a words man, really. Although, you know, subsequently I've been really lucky that I've done a couple of documentaries for BT Sport. Um, but um, then I just got the job at Fleet, I got the job in tele, uh, at the Telegraph, and it was a typical Fleet Street experience. I got the job in the pub. There was a pub. There was a pub in uh, uh, next to 85 Fleet Street, literally next to it, called the King Keys, and it was very narrow, very dark. And it was one of those pubs that you know that you're in a serious place because your feet stuck to the carpet. Okay. You know, it was there were some. <laughs> it, if those walls could speak. God, they'd have a tail. Um, and it was, it's really sad, actually, because, you know, one of the things that you do learn if you've been around a long time is that cultures change and evolve and nothing ever, nothing ever stays the same. And I went back recently um, to see someone, you know, because occasionally we do a sort of a, you know, a, a hacks uh, a retreat. into. There's, a, there's still a pub called the Cheshire Cheese that we go into and, and we also, you know, dive into Melvino's. But when I went to look for what the... the um, King and Keys, uh, it had been closed. It's closed now, and it's now a restaurant. And I just thought, oh, that's that's sacrilege, you know. Um, and that was again another experience, and it was an, another time where you know Fleet Street was fueled by alcohol at the time. Um, and you know, as young journo's, um, we used to congregate in the pub um, after having visited all the London training grounds. So, you know, I'd go to Arsenal and someone else go to Chelsea and you know, wherever. Then we'd get back into the pub about half past three and we'd divvy up the stories for the day. And although we were literally, you know, 50 yards, 100 yards away from our offices, there was a phone in the pub. So we just dictated our copy back into the pub, having worked out what we were going to do. Okay, well, we'll save that piece with... Malcolm McDonald, let's say, till tomorrow. And then that means we don't have too much to do tomorrow. So we did all that. So it's it was like the practicalities of journalistic life, really. And the great thing about that was, and it's something, you know, without being, you know, an old dinosaur, modern modern journos probably don't talk to enough people. We talk to people all the time. And I'm talking younger journos today. There is this almost artificial barrier between the, the young sports writer and their subjects. And there's a, there's, there's also, there's, there's also a bit of mutual misapprehension, you know, managers and, and, and players in those days um, weren't as distant and were more welcoming. Um, so, you know, I, I went through an era where, You'd, you'd go down to, uh, I don't know, Wimbledon was 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 always an event where you went at the training ground, that's the A3, and all you had to do really was essentially follow the, the smell of burning suits when you got there. You know, you knew what was going to go on. Um, and, they, you know, you'd go out for a drink with, with the players after training, and it was, it was a much more 
yeah, it was it was obviously a less less professional environment, but it was it was much more enjoyable. Um, but from that, you know, from those sort of early experiences, I did develop a real, you know, you have to have you have to have a code of your own conduct. I think, um, you know, and it's difficult sometimes to talk in about this because I don't want to come across as being pious, but I think you have to have standards. And I've always, Reg Hager said something to me very early on in my career where he said, look, you've only got one reputation, cherish it. And I resolved very early on that I'd never, ever break a confidence. And again, I'm, I, I, you know, I hope I'm not coming across as holier than they are there, but you know, I one there has to be trust, and there, there has to be sort of trust, mutual trust, and mutual respect between you and your interviewee or your subject. Or, and and you know, through that, it's it's interesting that guys guys evolve with you. So players that I know then became managers or coaches, um, or or public figures in certain other areas of life. You know, people like you know Gary Lineker now is obviously in 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 the media. Um, you know, you have to have standards. And I, I always felt um, there was always something missing. And, and I, even though I was really lucky and I was, you know, you know, got awards and all this sort of stuff, there was something missing actually until I started doing the book, doing books seriously. Uh, I spent a year embedded at Millwall for a book I called Family. And I learned so much more about, football in particular that year because I lived it you know as I said I, there was no way on earth I could ever ever get anywhere near being a professional football I was terrible but the 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 club made a you know in fact it was it, well I'll go back to, to the start of the idea like many things um the idea for the book began to sort of form in a piss-up we were actually, I was actually in Vegas, Las Vegas. I was in Vegas. And I shared a room uh, with um, a guy called Alan Jacket. It was Kenny Jacket's elder brother. And uh, Kenny and I, you know, we'd known each other since we were kids. We grew up on the same council estate in Watford. He was their manager at Millwall. And, you know, Alan was telling me the stories. And, you know, just the, the uniqueness of that football club. And I thought, you know, if I can get in there, that would be really... I've always wanted to, uh, five years probably before that, I, I, I wanted to try and do a, a real behind-the-scenes job at a football club. So I phoned Ken and said, look, this is my idea. If it's going to work, I need complete access. Complete access. Um, and I thought Ken was going to laugh at me. But he said, well, um, and he took him about 15 seconds. And he said, yeah, okay. I think that'll work because I think the club needs to um, almost be explained. So um, he said, well, leave it with me. I'll go and speak to the chief exec and the owner. And they both bought into it as well. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was a very strange experience, like turning up for the first day of preseason training. Right. Uh, and I'm sure this is something you can identify with the, with the, you know, I turn up at the training ground, Calmont road, and they, they, you know, they're all talking about, you know, what they did in Malaga or wherever it was. And it was, and you, you started people getting looking over their shoulders, saying, "Who the hell's that?" You know. So Ken got the group together and said, "Look, this is Mike. He's going to be with us all season." Da di da di da. 
and you can see a few thro throwing a glance. And at the end of the session, uh, Neil Harris, the, who was the captain and basically, you know, the man there, uh, came over and was you know, very, hello, oh, mate, how are you? you know, what are you doing then? You know, and he was obviously trying to work out me. And so anyway, you know, we, uh, we started that and it was, it was really, it was a fantastic experience for me because, you know, they were open enough to, to almost like assimilate me into the group. So, you know, very quickly, you know, through the, the pre-season friendlies, um, there was a sort of ritual, which I'm, as I say, I'm sure you guys are aware of, where it's this sort of, you know, 10 minutes for kickoff or five minutes for kickoff just before the ref knocks on the door. And there's a bit of the huddle going on and the slapping the backs and, and all that. And those little rituals, you know, the, the guys sticking stuff up their nose and taking pills and going as well. <laughs> and um, it was it was lovely that uh, we, we got into one. It was it was it was just I think it was final preseason friendly, but uh, Dave, David Ford, who was the goalkeeper, fantastic bloke, loud as you like. And he came over to me, you know, because the, the, the huddle and people were like doing the five fives and the, you know, the grasping the wrist and all that. And he said, what are you going to say to me? I said, what do you mean? I said, what, I said, what are you going to say to me? And he had his big glove fist up. I grabbed it. I grabbed it and said, have a good one. So he did. He went out and he came back. He said, and they, they won one nil that day. And he kept, kept a clean sheet. He said, every fucking day, every time we do this, you're gonna to have to wish me a good one now. So of course, <laughs> yeah, that was our little ritual. And it was it was weird because you know they they then acted. I was just Mike the writer. And I suppose there was a, a degree that I passed, you know, that I called them the governors. There were about seven or eight of them. Well, not, not six or seven, maybe the senior players who set the, the standards both both personally and professionally for the group. And you know, they were headed by Neil. Um you know, people like, you know, Paul Robinson, Fordy was in there. Um, Andy Frampton, who was a terrific guy, um, was Neil's assistant manager for a while, has now gone, gone out of the game to, uh, to manage his, his family business. Uh, but they were guys who, were, who, who just had standards, you know? And I loved the way that dressing room worked. Um, and I, I used to, I, I'd, I'd worked out, this is going to sound really pervy, but I'll tell you, I was, uh, I used to watch the group from just inside the showers because I could look down the dressing room and across it. So I could just see what, I could just see the interaction between people. And, you know, well, you guys have been in dressing rooms and stuff like that. So, you know, you know where they're, you know, mates are fighting one another and, you know, the, the yapping that's going on and everything else. And, I sort of float around that, you know, so I'm in. I almost sort of uh, when when Ken, like many managers at half time, would maybe he wouldn't go straight in. He'd go into his own office, which was next door, have two or three minutes with with uh, Kev Gallon, who was in number two, and so I'd be with them. And then you'd open the drawer and he'd, he'd door and he'd come in. So you'd hear the hear the team sorting sorting themselves out for the first two or three minutes, you know. So it's that, and I was on the I was on the bench in matches, in coaching meetings, everything really. And it was it was it was such an education. Um, and I also felt a bit for a bit bit like I you know me me as an eleven year old ball boy, I felt the insecurity of it all because you could see the guys who'd know they were struggling, 
you know, obviously, you know, there's a, you know, the, there's the tyranny of the team sheet, isn't there? The, you know, you're either on it or you're not. But um, it was, I found it really interesting how that went and how how players interacted, and also the natural cruelty of it. I, you know, I can remember one yad, one young lad coming on trial, and he got eaten alive, and it was it was horrible to watch, horrible. Um, but that's the game, isn't it? That's that's professional sport. You either you know you either sink or swim. Um, so I was really privileged, and I, I still to you know obviously Ken and I are mates to this day. Um, what I found gratifying was that uh, Ken, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you know I, the other thing I'd always do is I always I always work transparently. So I showed them everything, right? And um, because they all opened up to me and some, you know, you have to have respect for them. So for instance, you know, what I said when, the, when I gave them the manuscript, I said, look, if there's a factual mistake, I'll definitely change it. You know, of, of, you know that's, that's obvious. If, you, something, if there's something you don't like or you would like, you know, prefer not to be in there, let me know and we'll have a conversation about it. Uh, so I showed it to Ken in its entirety and, and I sent it to the governors as well, you know, the seven or eight guys. And Ken came back to me. We, we, we had a cup of coffee in a, a hotel in, in St. Albans, which is like equidistant between where we lived. And he, he sat down and he said, he said, fuck me, mate. I didn't, didn't realise we were going to go this deep. <laughs> um, uh, but to his great credit, he just said, yeah, look, this is what it is. This is what it is. And I, I learned a lesson from Ken that day, which I think transfers across professional sport, is that if you are transparent and you respect the professionalism of, of your subjects and produce something which is authentic, I think people accept that in the game, you know, that they, they, they know it's, you know, that they know it's not Walt Disney. You mentioned, you mentioned so many things, the, the trust, transparency and respect that obviously and you'll do yourself or it comes across like you do yourself a disservice of all that hard work you've built up and you've very rarely have deviated if ever at all to give yourself the opportunities that have come up, you know, whether that be certain setbacks and different things, but I know the other guys will, the, how many, other players we spoke to that have had them early experiences with coaches, um, uh, you know, with having been lied to, having been, you know, uh, senior players within the, the, the teams and, and told by a coach or a manager that, uh, you know, do this and do that and you're in the team on Saturday. And they're like, okay, that's no problem. I can do that. Sit there in the changing rooms and they're not in the team on Saturday and are still not spoken to afterwards which instantly breaks that for them and then potentially breaks that for everyone else in the dressing room so it's uh, it's such a uh, would you agree dean liam 100 percent. i think like mike mentioned there it's the code of conduct you know that personal standards that personal code of conduct you need that as a player 100 i mean you're you're self-employed as a player really self-management someone's going to guide you and give you an opportunity but it's whether you do the work um, or whether you're, you're willing to do it. But again, that trust element between a manager and player is so important, probably the most important thing, really. Um, and the best managers I worked under, I mean, Nigel Pearson is the best at it. Look, sometimes he'll tell you things that you don't want to hear, 
but he's up front with you and he's truthful and his word is his word, which is fantastic. We'll tell you when you're in the team. We'll tell you when you're not in the team. Um, and it definitely worked. And I think, you know, if you can have that relationship, that honest relationship, whether it's good news, bad news, it's going to help you as a player. It's going to help you as a person, really, because then you can... We talk about players not willing to open up or not willing to speak. If you've got a trustworthy relationship, there's more chance you will, definitely, with coaches, players, uh, managers, anyone around the training ground that you feel in it. If you feel safe in a safe environment and you've got them standards that Mike mentioned in life but can transfer into football, I think that's hugely important. I think it gets missed. It, it really, really does. Then, Them close relationships in football, I don't think they're so relevant now, especially at the top of the game. I, I really, really don't. Um, as you go lower down, I think they're still there, but there's the pressures. Managers, coaches don't get time. So, you know, potentially they're not thinking about that. They're just trying to live for the day. Um, and I think that's one thing that's going out of the game that needs to come back. There needs to be a balanced return to the game um, to, to help individuals, really, because that trust is, is everything. Golf, again, was a real lesson for me. Because, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, you, you, Dean, they were talking about, you know, basically players being, footballers being self-employed. Golfers are the ultimate self-employed sportsmen. You know, they, they basically, they eat what they kill. And that game, because the technical um, standards are so precise, but, the, but success is innately more mental, usually, than physical. That's what got me. I, I did some stuff behind the scenes during, during the, the last Ryder Cup. Um, fascinating. You know, Martin Keimer is a really fascinating guy. Quite, quite zen. Um, and it is interesting. As players and sportsmen develop, they do get this sort of spirit. Some of them get this spirituality. It's like, you know, I mentioned David Ford earlier on. He's now... I suppose you can call him a performance coach. I'm not quite sure. You know, he's even not quite sure what he is, but you know, he's someone who was the archetypal um, pro who could have just gone you know, imploded at any time. You know, he, he went back to Ireland after being in the league of Wales where he, his final act was to get sent off for fighting his teammates during the game. Um, and he came back and had an amazing career through force of will. I think he retired when he was 39. Played 20-odd games for, or, forgive me, Dave, if you're listening to this, but I think, I think it's 20-odd games for Ireland. Maybe more. Um, now, he was the, the, you know, the really combustible character. He used to be in the, he was fantastic in the, in the, uh, in the tunnel just before games. Because you know, in Millwall, there's a really tight tunnel and there's a really tiny away dressing room. And you could see these players come out of that dressing room. You know, some managers used to almost like, act like a policeman on the door when they were coming out, just in case there was any aggro. Um, and I, could, <laughs> I always used to, when, when, when they were going out, I used to get, I used to be 12th in line. I always went behind, 40 was at the back of it and he was giving it plenty. You know, he had this big basso profundo voice. You know, we're going to have this lot and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, expletives deleted on that one. But you'd see the players and they'd hear 
the sort of noise that you know the orcs are outside at Millwall, and, and you can think them. They can you can hear them thinking, "Oh, geez, you know, here we go." Yeah, and one, and one, they always there's always there was always one who made the mistake of just slightly half, not even half turning, just like fractionally turning their head, and forty be onto them, you know, and he'd be screaming out and giving them all sorts of shit. Now that character became this sort of Zen character. Took up yoga, visited a Bolivian shaman. Got, it went to the uh, uh, Indian reservations, learned from you know Navajo culture and everything else. And he's this blissed out guy now, which I can't get my head around at all. But it's interesting that he's actually now speaking from his own experiences as, as a professional athlete and passing on those those real world lessons to to others. Yeah, I can I can write and maybe interpret those lessons, but I've, never, I've not lived them. I've seen it. I've been really lucky to have seen it pretty close up. Close up. But golf is, it, was, it just investigates so, it just drags so much out of you mentally. I just thought it, it was a fascinating project to do. Um, and uh, I think it's also good to actually go across sport. You know, I've been lucky that I've done, uh, I, I I have my own writing, you know, my own sort of stuff, but I, I, I really enjoy doing co-writing with guys. So I've done uh, Alistair Cook, uh, Dylan Hartley, um, Gareth Thomas, and um, Jay Barton. And all those guys were brilliant because they had the moral courage to, to actually respond to you know, my bullying, to be honest. You know, I when I'm doing those type of books, I, I almost, um, I'm almost, you know, consciously unfair towards them. I try and push them, you know, and I say right at the start of the process, look, I'm going to push you. So with Joey, for instance, okay. you know, I insisted when he, when he came to me, I insisted that, um, uh, he do several things uh, if he wasn't going to do that, I wasn't going to do the book. Uh, and one of which was go to prison with me. I wanted him to go to prison with me just to experience that um, or re-experience that um, to get a sense of, uh, I, I then get a, a real sense of someone in those type of environments and you know, going back to the older state and stuff like that. With Gareth Thomas, it was, you know, we literally stood on the rock that he was going to jump to his death. You know, I pushed him, well, I didn't push him to do that, but um, that was a really, really powerful day um, because we, we, it, it was raining in the morning. It was near, we, we, basically, we went to stay at his mum and dad's near, near Bridge End, drove out uh, to his village church, uh, where in his, you know, he, he, he was struggling with his sexuality and um, he used to go, when when night fell, he used to go to the church and scream at the walls of the church, you know, why are you doing this to me, God, and all that sort of stuff. So we, we sat in the rain on a, on a bench in the graveyard in that, um, that morning and he would be pointing at graves and he'd say, well, you know, I, I wanted to be in that grave and... It, there was all this profound stuff going on. Then we said, right, we're going to go to um, the rock. 
and it was um, overlooking the Bristol Channel. And uh, we walked about a mile and a half over the, this sort of freshly ploughed field to get there. Very, very, you know, because it was, it, was, it was a private place. It, you know, people couldn't see him. It was on this promontory. And I said, right, let's talk, talk me through. You're going to commit suicide. What are we going to do? He said, well, I actually, sat, I actually lie down there. There was this little sort of area which had, um, the, the prevailing wind was on shore and uh, it sort of cut little, a little sort of ledge in the, in the, in the hillside, or cliff, cliff top. He said, I lay there, did everything, took my pants off. I took everything but my pants off. So I said, well, we'll lay down there and we'll talk about how you felt. Obviously, we'll keep our gear on, thankfully. thankfully. <laughs> Where are we going to go from? And he sort of showed, showed me this rock, which was about a metre square. And I said, right, okay. And I, this was just off the top of my head. I said, right, okay, we're going to stand on that. And um, I had my tape going. And we had a conversation on it. It was about 250 foot drop. And uh, it was weird because it was a, there was an onshore breeze. So basically, when I had the tape, I, we could barely hear what we were saying. But both of us had an absolute crystal clear recall of exactly everything we said to one another. And that is why I probably do what I do, because there was that, there was that one moment of absolutely sort of simpatico he took a, he, we, he took a, uh, a selfie at the moment uh, and he said uh, I said that's, that's closure for me and I went back to his, his mum and dad's that night and uh, he looked grey his, his, his face almost had the like sort of parchment and I thought you know my god I might have pushed him too far here. and um, I spoke to his partner in the morning Ian and uh I said, how was he? He said, oh, he didn't sleep. And I said, oh, you know. But I, so I went to Gareth and I said, look, you're okay. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I needed to do it. And it was, so there's that sort of intimacy of the process, which I've, I found um, really rewarding. Because, uh, you know, I admire, you know, those, all those guys that I've mentioned, Cookie and, and, and Dylan and, and Joe and, and, and Gareth, I they were capable of things that they, they achieved things that I could never achieve because I didn't have their degree of sporting talent. And I respect that immensely. Um, but they also proved something else to me about being you know, as men, you know, they really, um, you know, they, they really had the moral courage to address who they were and why they were. Um, and it's, it, you know, if, if people ask me why I do what I do, there was a moment at the end of the book with Gareth where I didn't tell him I was doing it. The last chapter uh, I'd written as a letter from him, uh, aged 40, as I think he was at the time, to the 16-year-old him. And I showed him this. Uh, and he went inside and read it. And well, it was, I, was, I was sitting on the patio having a drink. And he came out and he absolutely grabbed me and hugged me. He was sobbing, like really sobbing for, uh, oh, crikey, five minutes maybe. Um, and it was interesting that we did say during that book, doing well, the, the process, if we do this right, we can save someone's life. And that sounds really, you know, trite, doesn't it, in isolation? But... 
you know what? We actually found out that was true. We did a speaking tour and most nights we, we, we had someone who would come up and talk about their own process. And, you know, that was, whether that was, you know, there was one guy one night came, we, we, did, a, we did a gig in a church of all places in, in Bath, about 700 people. And a guy came out afterwards because there was a, they always used to form a line to get the book signed. And he said, Gareth, he said, uh, what did you see when you um, were on that cliff top? And he said, well, to be honest, I, I saw my mum and dad around my grave weeping. And he said, well, funny, uh, when I went to Western Supermare, I saw my kids. Bang, and he'd gone. He, 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 he went so quickly, he forgot the book. And I sort of trotted after him and gave it to him. But when we, when we sort of had done the night, we just said, wow, you know, that guy had never he'd never told anyone that. So that's the great privilege of what I do is to actually get into a situation where you can actually touch someone, you know, um, metaphorically rather than literally. Mike, do you think, sorry, mate, sorry yeah, to yeah, interrupt. Yeah, um, but from, from, from listening to that, which is, which is unbelievable and it hugely helps me and me and Louis have, and Liam have conversations about this especially sports people, because I can only reflect on that because I had a career in sport. Do you think understanding yourself is huge? Is, is, is understanding yourself and, and being willing to, I wouldn't say accept yourself, but be a piece of yourself with who you are? Because I think that was half my troubles when I came out of the game. I didn't really know who I was anymore, where I'd put a mask on, I'd been a certain type of character to be able to achieve the career that I achieved me personally. And when I come out of the game, whether I wanted to be that person, whether I couldn't be that person anymore, whatever the problem was, really caused me issues. And, and we've had loads of discussions on understanding yourself, be at peace of that. I'm okay with who I am. You know, I used to, I had a drink problem when I come out of the game and I had a, probably a drink problem when I, when I was in the game, if I'm honest, but probably didn't realise it in the fact that I used drink to help me become a person that would help me fit within that environment of football so I didn't feel uncomfortable so I didn't feel nervous and I used that but obviously when I come out of the game I continue to use it and it spiraled out of control to be honest so just that message that you were saying there about Gareth that he went to all them steps to try and understand himself to really try and accept himself to 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 be at peace that he could be who he wanted to be and not because other people expected him to be a certain way I think if we can get that message across to more people and be willing to talk about it, and you doing books like you do, I think it's fantastic. I think that could really help people. Yeah, I suppose it's you look at it, professional sport and any public-facing profession, you are identified with what you do. Footballers are identified as professional footballers. They, I think part of the problem is that you know, there was something that Sean Dosh talked about <coughs> Excuse me. It was professional, prof uh, sorry, premature professionalism, mm. i.e., you got these eight, nine-year-olds told they're, they're footballers. Well, they're not footballers; they're kids. Um, that aside, I think on the broader level, um, when when I, you know, I've seen athletes struggle when they um, uh, you know have, have to retire. Um, but it is also interesting that some, 
it's it, I think it's a horses for courses thing to, to to be honest, Dean, because I take Dylan Dylan Hartley as an example. While we were doing the book, you know, he was he had he was suffering from basically the injury which caused him to retire after ninety seven caps. He was gonna, you know, it was per, it was gonna be the fairy tale farewell, you know, captain England in the Rugby World Cup. Um, he did everything possible, despite the pressure he was put under by Eddie Jones, which I thought wasn't clever management, but that's another story for another day, probably. Um, and he, it was I, I, I talked to him on the on the morning of the World Cup final because I thought, God, he's going to be really down. I, I called him, and he was fine. He said, "Look, I've come. I've, I've got my head around now. Um, you know, I've just got to move on." And uh, I thought that showed fantastic reserves of character, strength of character, mental strength. Of mental strength, as you guys know, is fundamental, isn't it? And uh, Dylan actually was really interesting as a case study because. His sport is absolutely brutal. I was I was amazed. He, he gave me all his medical records. It's it's a brutal brutal sport, which can you know and and you know there is an element of living your life while you're young because you're going to pay for it when you get older. You know, I, I shudder to think. You know, he's now you know, after a game. He he couldn't walk downstairs straight. He couldn't bear to have a shower because of his, his, his shoulders were wrecked. He couldn't go to the toilet. He, he had to. He had to. He had to sit on the toilet with one leg over a bath. Mm. Just do the basic ablutions. And you think, wow, that's something that you know, that's something that sport takes out of you. In, in incredible um, acceptance of that. But what he also was, he was smart. He he understood, you know, he played rugby for Northampton for a long time. And, you know, Northampton is a rugby town. And so there is that sort of um, ambassador-type role you can play quite easily. But he was bright. He, there was a, a, a shoe factory um, near, near the training ground, um, he would go in there and the the owner was um it was churchy shoes you know quite quite nice shoes you know 150 quid shoes and he learned business practices from the boss of that so he he was always preparing himself for something that would come eventually so i think that that's i think the the guys who struggle maybe are so busy living the life of professional sport that when that's no longer there they just they just it's you know it's like they just go straight off the cliff you know mm. i think that's that's the difficult part and that's where i think if i'm being entirely honest i think i think the aftercare services by the pfa i think they're abysmal if, if i'm honest um i I, lo I look at the duty of care that um Young players, towards young players in particular, I think is 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 lacking. I know the F PFA do some great courses, um, but there is that element I've always found. I've always found in in, in anecdotally talking to people, because obviously I've never been actually a professional footballer, 
but guys do say that they do feel almost abandoned afterwards or some guys mm-hmm. don't. I don't know whether that's fair or not. And if it's, if it's unfair, I'd, I'd, I'd apologize for it, but it's very, my very strong sense that f- football bit like music and stuff like that is that it eats their young it eats the young doesn't it and and that's i don't think enough is done in terms of holistic care for people in professional sport am i being am i being unfair thing no no I, i'm sitting here and nodding my but i i agree with you um i don't think there's enough done i think that's 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 the right way to put it i think there's um an attempt to pro- potentially help, um, but from a distance without real effort, um, whether that's down to funding, whether that's down to not being interested, whether that's down to, like you say, duty of care, I'm, I'm really not sure, but I can only speak from my personal point of view. Never had any contact from anyone from the PFA when, when my contract ran out. Um, why, would it na- why, why would it need for me to make a public announcement that I'm going to retire from the game to someone to make to, to get in contact with me, which never happened anyway, but it's more duty of care of someone having a conversation with you. Okay, what are you looking to do now? Are you going to continue playing? You're at this certain age. Have you financially set yourself up? What are you going to do with your pension? Um, what's your uh, interest in terms of the, your next career? Could we help you with anything? Could we get in contact with some previous clubs? Could we set up some meetings for you? Could... You know, I think we one thing that's massively helped me, um, and which I didn't do for a long time, is being able to speak to people, you know, and being willing to open up and have a conversation with with people that have gone through similar things. I think that's the major thing that that misses, to being aware of what's potentially going to happen to you emotionally when the game's over. I think that's the major thing, emotionally, because the other stuff you can deal with, but your emotions, that's tough for every individual, and every individual is different. So having conversations with people is huge. So no, I agree with you. Like I've never had, I've been finished the game four years now. I've not had one contact with anyone from the PFA, anyone within football, only because potentially I've reached out or tried to do something. No one's contacted me. So look, I know it works both ways and players have to take more responsibility, 100%. Um, but I think that again, I use the word again, there needs to be more balance within um, within the game, and I'm only talking about football because that's that's the sport I was in. But um, there needs to be more done, and that's not always from a financial point of view. I mean, how much better would I have felt if someone had just called me up, and said, "Dana, do you want to chat? Come in for a coffee. We'll, we'll show you some example of what 20 other players have done when they've left the game." Mm. Would well, have hugely helped me mm. because you are so conditioned to being self-reliant. You almost become a robotic, I suppose, to a degree. I did something. I, I spoke to Marvin Sordell, uh, and Marvin um, attempted to take his own life uh, one day. He, he went into training the next morning, nine thirty in the morning, as though nothing had happened. Didn't tell anyone at all. He didn't even tell his wife for four years. That's the sort of sort of like you know you're almost a prisoner of your own mind in that situation yeah. aren't you? you yeah know? and uh um I, I find marvin a really really um compelling guy I, I like him immensely you know i i met him when i was doing um uh one of the documentaries and you know he's he's, he's the interviews uh 
in the, in the current book, um, whose game is it anyway? Um, I f- I found because he was you know, when you looked at him, you thought, oh, there's a, there's got to be an, there's an attitude problem there. That's what everyone assumed about him. Well, no one knew what was inside going on inside his head and inside his life, so he had to deal with that those sort of misapprehensions as well. And and I suppose. Well, you know, you guys know what a dressing room is like. You know, if if you don't if you don't fit, you don't fit. <laughs> you know, and it's sometimes. And I I tell well, I'll, I'll I'll put my hand up here. When I did the Millwall book, um, Lewis Graben, the uh, the striker, was so far out of the group. Um, really respected his his commitment to his faith. But he was just, he was, he, he just came in, left early, wanted to do his own gym, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously had huge athletic ability. Um, but at the end of it, I, I thought this, this kid's going to be out of the game in 18 months max. There's no way that he, he'll, he'll fulfill himself because of who his type of character Absolutely fair play to the guy. He's still going strong for Nottingham Forest. He's had a great career, and I was completely and utterly wrong. Uh, and that actually was a lesson for me because I, I'd made judgments about him, which probably um, were premature. Well, they were certainly premature, and they were probably from half form. I, I probably took took a bit too much heat of the group as well. You know, sometimes some people are out there. Um, you can never ever tell really what's going on inside their own lives because you're not living inside their head. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent agree with that. There's, there's, <clears throat> there's so much that um, again, again that you you touch on. You mentioned the um, the self management, and you know when you when you told the, the story there of Gareth, that um, cut through me like a knife on a personal level, uh, Mike. Only because of been through the same experiences uh, on a on a on a couple of times, um, but you mentioned like the um, as players come out, and I think I'm certainly go for it. Whether he's, Russell Brand sort of explained it as whether it's a midlife crisis or a midlife awakening, um, I think it's I think I'm going through certainly a midlife awakening now of, and and I think purely due to the lack of understanding that I experienced of myself over a, a, an awful long period of time so I'm playing professional golf and as soon as anything goes wrong I default to masking it as Dean does Dean mentioned with drink um, with wrong relationships with whatever that is because I I think is there's a a fear of understanding us as individuals so the more the more I go over to it the people I see that seem to um, sustain of one of two are either have, have huge faith or huge are hugely aware of a particular um, belief or spiritual belief, you know, something bigger than themselves or ones that very quickly stick by their guns very early in their career and don't deviate. So this is who I am as a person, whether you like it or not, this is who I'm going to be. So they don't mold or move for anyone at all. Um, And I think that that's the, certainly the thing I struggled with myself Dean, you know, was and we we spoke uh, with Matt Holland, I think it was, who was was saying the same thing from a very, 
young age? And is there a fear that if I allow myself to open up one way or another, that it's going to deviate me from what I know that I am solely driven on this. I cannot afford to, to move any attention elsewhere when I'm at the top of the game, because I know that I've worked so hard that if I shift that attention, I'm liable to lose my place in the team. I'm liable to lose where I'm at or whatever that is. So it comes down to, from my eyes, the fear of, um, of, of that, that stops you from being able to open up. Would that, would you agree, Mike, in your experiences? <clears throat> yeah, I, do, I just think self-knowledge is key, you know. Um, let, uh, let's take uh, Cookie, Alistair Cook, as an example. Um, I know Cookie, he, he lives five minutes away from me. Now I live in Bedfordshire. Uh, I'd see him in a local pub um, with the young farmers. Um, you know, we knew of one another, Um both of us probably in in a local area don't talk try and talk too much about what we do because um you know sometimes uh it's quite nice to actually not talk about football or sport for a while but you know uh of course you know if anyone does ask me i'll i'll tell them but um when we when we talked about doing the book um what i normally do is i go and have a drink with someone just see how we get on as people you know have a bit of a speed speed date with them and we went to the local pub village pub um, and Cookie said, well, look, I'm not really, I'm not that special. Uh, you know, I've had no great trauma in my life. You know, how are you going to get a book out of this? I've read the other stuff you've done, you know, and they've, they've had lives. And I said, well, hang on a second. You know, you're, you're the most successful batsman we've ever produced. You know, you've done, you know, you, 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 your record stands alongside anyone. I said, look, it's my job to find out why. And he said, well, I said, yeah, okay, fine. So, you know, we, it was interesting that very quickly I formed an idea of why he was who he is. But also I think the key to him, and it's something maybe which has wider significance, he had an ability to compartmentalise his life in the way that he does his game, because as a captain, as a cricket captain, you are thinking for everyone all the time. Now, he's also an opening batsman, which is a very, very specialist job. And so, because I used to say, like, how on earth do you do, like, two days in the field where you're making decisions on a, on a you know, minute-by-minute minute basis? Walk off the pitch, walk back on again, and be a... a an opening batsman against the world's greatest bowlers. And he and he said, well, he said, I don't really think too much about it. And I said, okay, but surely you must have been conditioned to it um, somewhere along the line. So we, we went right back. And it dawned on me then, he's quite an enclosed guy, Cookie, and um, he takes after his mum, actually. And... Um, he spoke about being left. He was eight years old. He was left um, at the choir school at Westminster Abbey um, by his mum and dad, uh, eight years old. He had a teddy and what he called his cubie, which was like a, like a rubber cube, uh, cube that he used to throw at the wall and it would bounce off at different angles and he'd have to do his catching, you know. So he's eight years old. 
and he's immediately in a performance environment. He's training, he's training, he's singing, you know, he's in the choir school. At the end of his first week, he was doing a, a televised concert. Then he did a, an album with Tiri Takanawa. So at eight years old, he was under competitive pressure from day one. And that's followed through. Then he's had natural talent as a cricketer. That's enabled him to go right through his career there is a normality about judgment. Now it's just the judgment is in different levels and at different, you know, in different environments. But also I think he learned along the way that as a captain in particular, he needed to be a bit more human. And he, he looks back now and he, he sometimes a little feels a bit guilty. Then he looked at there was Jonathan Trot was going through a really bad phase when they were in Australia, and um, he said we're, we're going out to bat, um, and Trotty was number three, and he was in the corner of the dressing room in tears. He was just he'd gone, and Cookie literally had to go out and bat. So he's he's saying look. Someone short this, someone's got to sort this shit out. Come on, so not in any um, dismissive way. And he, he thought about that for about a day or so, and he realised that there was in, there was a moment in Sydney a couple of weeks before. He said, "I should have done something because um, Trotty put the bowling machine up to the fastest possible speed, and just just basically letting the ball hit him." And wow. uh, it was like, and, and, and uh, Cookie said, I should have realised at that moment that he was in real trouble. And I didn't, and I, I, I'm beating myself up because of it. I beat myself up because of it. So it might be that, that you know, C Cookie learned a lot about himself in that moment. So, I, uh, and it's, he has to, ha you know, his escape valve, you know, he, he set a record. Was it? I think it was at Headingley from, from memory. Got in his car, drove down the motorway, rounded up a, a load of sheep to go and market that night. Whereas most people would be on the lash, wouldn't they? Having set a record, you know, in a test match. That type of that type of um, ability to to put behind the superficiality of a of, of professional sport, I think, was really important for him. And and is why now I see him now. I saw him a couple of days ago and, you know, he was in his, um, you know, in his Land Rover and, you know, crap everywhere. And uh, he was, he, he was lo loving it, you know? Um, so I suppose, you know, know yourself and I, he does know himself. I think that's a really important lesson to, to draw from it. Absolutely. Fantastic. There's going to be many, many people. I'm just thinking of, uh, of all the recommendations. Now we go over the other sports of, of uh, of just this this short conversation is going to have so much benefit. It's um, honestly thank you, Mike. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Pleasure. Um, so the 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 book now, whose game is it anyway? Um, tell us tell us a little bit more uh, about where that came from, and obviously being the the newest, I've got some books to order. By the way, some serious reading to do. <laughs> Liam's Liam's the biggest reader, so he's going to have questions out of all sorts. He, uh, he would have read bad. every one. Oh, we're, we're newcomers to reading. We're 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 in, but we're new. 
Well, whose who's game is it anyway? I suppose, as I said earlier on, it's probably better to be born lucky than talented. So that's come out on the day the Super League was, uh, was in the news. So I think there's been a bit of attention to it, which is great. Um, I suppose you know, we mentioned it earlier on, didn't we? I think this whole idea of self-reflection. And if you think about it, we all in our own way, privately, to a different degree, obviously, because we're all different people. The last year in the pandemic has been a time of self-reflection. And I've used my own period. I wrote this during this time. And uh, I suppose there was a pivotal moment. Um, it was um, just before 6.30 in the morning on May the 7th, 2020 and uh, my father-in-law passed away from uh, from covid in his care home in devon uh so much for the uh, ring of care around uh, care homes um and it was a it was a it was a, it was a it was a you know deeply personal moment obviously we, we weren't able to to see him in his in his final days um which to be honest is still haunting uh, we communicated via FaceTime, and he, he was also um, his name was Ollie Goss, and he was he was um, he had a great life. He was ninety seven, former uh, Marine Commando, um, a senior teacher who unleashed. Um, he, ga he gave George Michael his break in pop music by allowing him to do the school, school disco uh, with Andrew Ridgely. Um, but uh, about two or three, well, no, about, about four days before he passed, um, my wife asked him a story, uh, asked him about football. Uh, he was a massive Watford supporter. And we knew he'd been a, a good young footballer. And he, he played a bit of semi-pro stuff after the, after the war. And instantly, you know, he was suffering from, from accelerated, an accelerated form of uh, vascular dementia anyway. And so the curtains were drawing. But suddenly he was 10, 11 years old again. And he talked about walking to the game through the streets, the terrace streets of West Watford, uh, and what Saturdays meant. And Saturdays was visiting the sweet shop, that anticipation of the game, going to the ground, seeing all these people around him, the game itself. Um, and it obviously had a huge impact on him. And when he passed, we found um, a, a, a wooden box in, in one of the sheds. And it was full of his, uh, his dad's uh, carpentry tools, woodworking tools. But on the inside of the box, there were three fixture lists from the 1932-33 season. Um, annotate, all the results annotated in, in pencil, Watford in the third division south, the reserves, and also the, they had a London midweek team. And there was a small thumbnail photograph above that midweek team. I just thought, well, who's that? So I researched, I researched the, uh, uh, the time, the team. Um, I, in that research, I came across a photograph of my father-in-law um, in the 1945-46 season, team photograph of, it was the Royal Marines team. Uh, and I thought, 
you know, that looked familiar. Now it couldn't it couldn't have been him in nineteen thirty-two, because he was only ten years old. But I'm wondering, did he have a trial for Watford when he was like 17 before the war? And I and I'll never know, because the club didn't know, you know, understandably enough. Um, but what it got me thinking, because at that time I'd fallen out of love with football completely. I'd had enough of it. I'd, I'd had enough of the cynicism and the commercialism and just the hypocrisy and the duplicity of it all. I just thought it wasn't worth bothering with anymore. Although professionally, of course, you know, I kept up this pretense that I was really interested in it and, you know, you do what you have to do sort of thing. But um, it was that act. It was obviously a massive link. Football was the link between him and his dad. And it just reminded me of football's ability to give identity and a sense of purpose and a collective cause, if you like. You know, a bit like I talked about earlier on when I was a ball boy. And I thought, well, if I look, so this, that's when the, the book was born. I thought, well, I'll look through my life, which has been, you know, I've been blessed professionally. You know, council house kid, worked in eight-year-old countries all around the world. Um, look at the lessons that sport's given me. Look at the nature of heroes. Um, but then also try and find the good in the game. Try and find the good people working in, you know, what, as Gareth Southgate says, you know, it's a shitty industry. And um, so that's the real, that's the sort of, you know, what we call the narrative arc of the book. You know, it's me, it's me basically going through, you know, that, that time when I had TB, um, going up to see my granddad's uh, up in, White, in, in Whitehaven in Cumberland, um, those early football experiences um, you know, the big game, um, all that sort of stuff. And then my professional career and some of the other sort of life stuff that I, you know, I, saw, I, I saw around the world in a, in a yacht race, um, uh, which is, which tells you actually how, how much journalism has changed. You know, I was chief sports writer in the Telegraph at the time and I went to see a guy called David Welsh, who was my sports editor, brilliant, innovative sports editor. And so as chief sports writer, my role was, you know, by definition to do all the big events. Uh, and I went to him and said, well, look, um, can you take me off a diary for a year? Um, he said, well, why? Well, I said, I want to sail around the world. <laughs> he sort of said, well, okay, why? And he said, so I explained this race and we were going to go around the, world, around the world the wrong way against the wind and the tides and all this sort of stuff. And that was, that was huge for me personally. It was, a, you know, as a life experience. I'd have never, ever, ever been allowed to do it today in journalism. No chance. Um, but it informed me again. It's informed my writing since because I, you know, I, I came back from that, you know, um, and I've recreated it a little bit in the book where I, I found my old kit bag and my old journal. And there were two excerpts which I put in the book where uh, on the way back, essentially the, the, so it was around the world the wrong way. So it was uh, Port of Call was Rio, Hobart in town. We went from Rio around Cape Horn the wrong way, Hobart, Hobart, Cape Town, Cape Town home. And one of the guys on the other boats basically couldn't face going home and he, he jumped, committed suicide. And these two excerpts basically um, 
provide an insight into my thinking at that time. And when I came back, again, I was still chief sports writer. I had to do all the big things. It was it was the Premier League's first season, so I missed that pretty much. Um, and I couldn't take it seriously. I just couldn't take it seriously. I went to Ian, but I knew I was in trouble. I, I, when I got back, my first job, such as it was, I, I went to the Falkland Islands to play the world's most remote golf course um, uh, in uh, near Goose Green. And then came back, Did uh, I did uh, Ian Botham's last game as a first-class cricketer. And the Telegraph gave me the entire back page. And, um, you know, all the other papers were, you know, the conquering hero departs and all this sort of stuff. I absolutely mullered him. I slaughtered him. Um, you know, I think it was, the headline was, uh, Botham exits all paunch, no punch. And I thought, <laughs> talk about failing to read the room. And, um, you know, so basically I needed something to just basically put me back together again. And um, Bobby Charlton, was, who was, uh, was obviously a childhood hero of mine, had actually uh, come out one of, I got 25,000 letters when I came back from that race. And, uh, and Bobby uh, was one of them. He said, yeah, I'm actually identified with, with us as ordinary people and, and that sort of stuff. So I used that as a pretext to, to, to do an interview with him prior to the second season where obviously Man United won, won the double. And um, he basically talked. It was the first time I'd, I'd had the, the perception of a football club and a football team as a family. He was talking about Munich and you know, the poor boys who lost their lives. And that basically put me back together again, really. Um, so, you know, off and running again there. But, um, yeah, it's it's so so the book dwells on all that. And then I just look at, at good people doing good things, if I try to. You know, I, I love the ethos of, of Andy Holt at Accrington, went to Bury AFC to look at the, the viability of, of, of Phoenix clubs, but also most pertinently what a football club means to the individual fan, especially when it's not there. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, looked at some guys who probably don't get any recognition, but they should do. One was a guy called Pete Lowe, who I'd featured in a couple of the other books, or certainly one of the other books, but, um, you know, he's dealing, and, you know, you'll probably identify with this, Dean, He's a problem solver. So every day in player welfare, he's dealing with real issues with kids, basically, 13, 14-year-olds. Mm. And who deals with the problems experienced by the problem solver? And you know, he went through – he called me just for the, um, the pandemic and we met up at a golf club in, just outside Manchester. He's a, a, a really a, you know, terrific guy. And he was dealing with the, the fallout from a young uh, lad who'd been released from a Premier League academy. He, was, he had been found in, his, in the family garage about to try and um, take his own life by his dad. Um, and he said something that day, which, which obviously was, was, was terribly prescient, where he said that one day we're going to wake up and reading our paper or scroll down our phone or listen to a news report on the radio that a young player has, has committed suicide after being released. And, and you know, tragically, that, that occurred in October. Um, but he then talked about the pressure on himself. And, you know, when you've got boys 
so distressed that they you know they're hyperventilating they can't they can't deal with it dealing with the fear there was a young boy who talked about the tunnel he was very close to getting into the first uh, into the senior group uh it was outstanding but when he got close he was so terrified by it he he likened being in the tunnel to being in his coffin wow. so when when you're dealing with um that sort of raw emotion you're you know you're you're there's bound to be some effect on yourself and and, and you know Pete, Pete basically said yeah you know i had a breakdown because of it so you know i hope the book i you know, hope people read the book for 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 people like Pete. um simply because I want guys like that to get the credit they deserve um, because they're doing very, you know, vital work outside the system. You know, Pete now does work with a group called players net uh, who, because of the politics of sport, don't get, don't get any funding or, you know, hopefully they will get some soon, but it's, you know, the one thing that I'm that I'm privileged to have is a platform, and I don't mind kicking a few shins if I need to, um, because I think I owe it as a writer and a communicator to you know tell the story of people who des- whose stories deserve to be told, whether they are globally significant sportsmen or or and women or you know guys that perhaps their names aren't readily recognisable. There's some brilliant people out there, you know, and hopefully, hopefully people will read the book and see what sport can do um, for them as individuals, uh, but also give them a few, I hate the phrase, but a few role models to, to, to follow. Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. I, I feel very privileged to have, um, have spent this, time with you mike and i know the other guys will as well it's um it's 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 very it's been very different it's touched me personally in a, in a very different way because it's you, you highlight so much um how things in football things in sport you know correspond to to anyone in in day-to-day life um i think there's huge elements of inequalities that are learned through that that you you highlight that are able to assist people out of out of sport as well which i think get overlooked in in the qualities and, and skills that are learned during that um so on a on a personal level mike i thank you for every single minute of your your time this will be listened to many many times i uh, i will be straight as soon as we've uh, i debriefed myself on this i've got notes coming out all over the place that will um, will highlight so much i will be ordering um in in uh, in no uncertain terms, every single every single book. I'm gonna. Would you would you say for on a personal level, shall I start new or shall I go go backwards a little, Mike? What um, you've sold the new one to me. I'm I'm in yes. the new one. Get 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 the new one and maybe maybe go to family as well. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Because that's how a team works. Hopefully, this all this all started. Life outside of sport started from from reading your books, Mike. Not to blow smoke off you backside but um some of the things in there and i i think following on from what you were saying about the the stories of younger players i I just wanted to ask about um 
Vontae Daly Campbell, the, the the young lad that you write about in No No Hunger in Paradise, and obviously he's now come through um, and made his professional debut at my club at Leicester. Yeah, um, that's one hell of a story, and that's where I first heard the name and and in that in that chapter in the book to see him come through and start to come through into a first team. There must be an element of pride in that, and to have told that story early on and to follow his journey. I just wondered what feelings you 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 go through when when things like that come out yeah yeah Vontae Vontae is a, a classic example of you know the modern urban footballer with all the challenges that come with that um there is an element of his emergence which tells me he has been hugely well looked after on a human level at the football club I think Brendan Rodgers has been very good for him. I think there's an element. There's a. I, I'm 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 impressed with with Brendan. Um, it's funny to be honest. I I, you know, I did a book called like Living on the Volcano, looking at all the, the football managers, and my my chapter with Brendan was when he was at Liverpool. And to be honest, I did take the piss a bit. Um, it was. Um, you know, he came in after a run. I was in his office up at, in Millwood and uh, he talked about, oh, yeah, I love running around the streets with my people. I can smell the mints. And I'm thinking, come on, mate, you don't need to say, you don't need to come up with that. Uh, but what he told me that day, it was, it was, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I, I sort of made a little sort of point of starting the chapter and then saying, look, enough of this. We'll stop the chapter and we'll start again. OK, so we did that. Uh, and I, I was doing, I did do a sort of little series on with manager podcast series with managers um, just for the pandemic, and um, went to see Brendan up at Lister, and I asked him at the end of the, I said, well, what would, what did you, um, yeah, what have you learned along the way? And he said, he said, Mike, he said, I've learned to listen more and speak less. And he just looked at me, and I thought, yeah, okay, we all, you know, it's one of those moments where you know what what's going on, and. Uh, uh, so I think I think he's a really good. He's obviously a very good technical coach, but I think he's also an, an empathetic human being, and I think that probably helped Vontae. I have to also give massive credit to Alan Redmond, who uh, was his agent. You know, dealt with the the dramas along the way, and you know, with young you know young lads like that from that environment, there are all sorts of diversions and distractions. Um, and you know, it's interesting. Um, Alan came, Alan, Alan, um, I featured Alan in one of my books and in, in No Hunger, and he came across ever so well. He, uh, um, I've had mixed experience with, with, with Asians, but he is, I'd have my, you know, I, I didn't trust my kids to him. He's just, a, he's a really principled guy, and he's, he's now, funny enough, he's head of football at um, Rock Nation. Um, which is an interesting organisation. You know, they've got, um, you know, there is a there is a much broad, broader. I think that's that's a broader approach to, to to representation than than some of the old the old school uh, agents. But so you know, I think you know, it's, it's again you look at some of these some modern footballers. Quite a few have have very powerful, resilient mothers. You, you take Marcus Rashford. Raheem Sterling, you know, Vontae's mum, 
was there for him. Um, I just hope that okay, he made his one game. He made a good, you know, made a made his breakthrough. He's obviously got potential. He's one of those lads. I think it can probably go either way. He, you know, he, 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 he's fortunately he's got good people around him. He, he can definitely play, but as you guys know, that's only part of the equation, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I was really, I was really pleased for him. Um, Alan actually texted me a couple of hours before the game, saying that he's he's, he's going to make his debut. So and he was on TV. Mind you, every every damn game's been on TV for the last month, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, last few months, but um, yeah, and so I. Uh, um, I made a point of watching. Uh, I was really, yeah, it, it is weird actually. You do get a sense of, 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 of pride. There's, there's another lad in No Hunger in Paradise who I am immensely proud of. Um, they're called Zach Brunt, and you know, I, I annotate his story. You know, of a lad who went to Sheffield United at five, won a competition at Man United at six, went to Aston Villa. Uh, at seven or eight, uh, went to Manchester City f- at 10, Atletico Madrid at 12, uh, Derby County at 14. When I, when I did the film No Hungry in Paradise, he was just about to play for Matlock Town and he was kicking a ball around in the park. And I just saw this whole thing. I thought I just saw his life sort of beginning to sort of, you know, stretch out in front of him really unpromisingly. Uh, and I felt for him. And I, I just thought, look, you know, you haven't been allowed a childhood lad, you know. So he, he uh, went from Matlock Town to Sheffield United. Um, he's only 20, I think he's 20, 21 now. 20, I think. Uh, been on the bench in the Premier League this season. I just think that's a, that kid has got amazing staying power, resilience, maybe blind faith. I don't know. But certainly when I saw him in that park at Matlock, I thought, blimey, I've just told a story which isn't going to have a great ending. And all the credit to him, absolutely all the credit to him. I thought he was fantastic. I think he's fantastic. He can play. He's sort of a, uh, a 10 um, and... Um, you know, I really, really hope that in the championship next year he gets his chance because it, it will be such a story, and he he will be a symbol to every kid. Sometimes it's also not the right way to do it. You know, when when you just sacrifice your childhood, and you've had more clubs than the most pros by the time you're fifteen, you know, God, what's going on? You know, but hey, good luck to good luck to Zach. Hundred yeah, percent. Brilliant, Mike. Uh, fantastic. No, right, mate. Thank you, Mike. Brilliant, mate. Really, really appreciate that. Okay. No worries. No worries. Keep up the good work, mate. Thank, Thank you. All the best with all, right. all the See best with the book, Mike. See you later. Thank you very much. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Bye. Hi all, it's Liam here, just jumping on to thank today's guest, Mike Calvin. Mike's new book, Whose Game Is It Anyway, is available now at all good bookshops, and an audio version is available and audible. Thanks to my co-hosts, Dean Hammond and Lewis Harrington, and a special thanks to you for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. 
if there are any topics or subjects discussed in this or any other episode and you'd like to reach out to us please visit lifeoutsidersport.co.uk where you'll find all of our contact details and our social media links thanks again for listening we'll see you again soon take care bye bye